So today we have Mr. Canton Pillay. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much. Welcome to Verity. So we know each other for a little bit. Quite a while, a few years now. Yeah, except I, I, I still don't understand how you find people to give you these fancy offices. At no charge, I assume. The socialism. <laughs> uh, no. No, this is a project between myself and the person who owns this place, so that's why. But in your Twitter bio, I never actually asked you this, it says you travel the world in 10 days, which uh, but world, must yeah. be a record of sorts. I, I, Unless you reach a brand same with I, I don't know. I, I think Francis Gary Powers, before he got shot down, actually did somewhat better than that. So I, I don't know whether those actually did do around the world trips. Now that I think. Yeah, but you did a commercial. I'm sure you did commercial flights. I did commercial. And you flights. landed in areas and took off and I did, yeah. all that. Yeah. So what was that about? Well, 2011. Um, you know, every year there's this thing called the Apple Worldwide Developer Conference. Yes. Yes, and um, 2011 was, uh, I, I was convinced that that was the last year that Steve Jobs was going to be around. So, um, and he, of course... I think that was true, right? Yeah. That, that was true. the last year. It was the last year. Yeah. So, uh, I called the guys who were doing app development for me in Durban and uh, said, guys, how many tickets do you have for WWDC? Because the thing is that tickets for these things are scarcer than hands cheap. Right. You know, you go on the lottery... When you, uh, as you, the clock fires up, you go online, and then suddenly, all of the tickets are sold out, and they, you know, a few thousand dollars a pop and stuff like that. And he said, "Oh, we've got five tickets," and I said, "No, you've got four. <laughs> and he says, "How's that?" I said, "Because you've got to bounce one of your team, and uh, um, you've got to give me one of those tickets instead." Which, you know, I was able to do based on the fact that I, um, I was at the time their best customer. So right. Uh, so they were very glad to oblige. So All right. I then began checking out flights to and from San Francisco. Normally when I fly to the U.S., I fly through London. And the reason why I fly through London is firstly because I hate subsidizing South African airways because they're a bunch of corrupt bastards, but we know this. Yeah. And um, the second thing is that that 17-hour haul across the Atlantic is... That's rough. Yeah, it's rough. I've done it and, twice. It's... Yeah, and, and you don't want to do that. So it's an overnight flight to London, um, you know, Take a couple of hours strolling around the city and then hop a connecting flight um, to New York, San Francisco, wherever, and um, and it's a lot of fun. Plus, on the way back, I normally stop over and stay with a friend. And um, But uh, this time around, said friend that I would normally hang out with was going to be in Portugal uh, on a dirty weekend. Right. So, so he ditched you. Well, so the London thing didn't kind of quite have the same attraction because you know I've pretty much seen everything there's to see in London so I said well what are my other options in terms of what I mean you know, I could fly France but I mean well, it's, it's Paris it's not really that much um, yeah Paris is the worst part of France yeah and, and, and then I said well actually wait a second what if, what if I go the other way around because you know San Francisco is kind of roughly halfway around the world yeah from where we are if you think about it True. So I said, what if we go the other way around? So I started taking a look, and uh, and sure enough, you know, Cathay Pacific is an overnight flight from um, from Johannesburg, and um, then there's a, a direct flight, Cathay Pacific, uh, from Hong Kong through to San Francisco. I said, well, this is really cool. And, you know, so I was going online about to book my ticket, and then I said, oh, hang on a second. Why don't I do... Cathay Pacific going across to San Francisco from this end and then catch a British Airways flight back. 
Oh, right, okay. Yeah. To London. Yeah, okay. to London, and then, and then swing around, you know, coming around the world that way. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it turns out this is not as easy as you might think, because all of the airlines actually want you to buy return tickets. Yes, Yeah. And, makes sense. And, and it's really, really difficult to, um, to buy a one-way ticket, because one-way tickets are more expensive than return tickets. That's, that's the first kind of uh, um, crazy part. And, um, yeah, and if you're actually breaking your journey in the way that I'm trying to, your, your costs just go up quite dramatically. So the, I was able to get a one-way flight on Cathay Pacific to Hong Kong mm-hmm. for around about um, 10,000 rand. Which, Which at the time was proper rent. Yeah, well, yeah, 2011. Yeah, it was yeah. significantly better than it is right now. Probably about 8 rand to the dollar at that time. And, um, but then British Airways, the cheapest flight that I could get San Francisco through to Johannesburg was about um, 35,000. On economy? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Except then I've got this really cool travel agent who's actually not too far from here. Um, also in Dunkeld. And she did a quick calculation, which is if I book San Francisco, London, London, Johannesburg, Johannesburg, London, the price of the ticket dropped from 35000 to 15000 Four. Okay. Yeah, I added a London leg. So it, yeah. it counts as a return trip, which means... And so I basically threw away that leg of the flight. And so... Basically, flew from Johannesburg, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, San Francisco, yeah. which was really cool because you know you you leave uh, 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 Hong Kong on uh, uh, on Sunday and land in San Francisco on Saturday the previous day, which, yes. is, which is pretty cool. And um, yeah, so got to see Steve Jobs at his uh, swan song. That's when they released the iPad, wasn't it? Um, oh, no, no, was, this is development conference, yeah, not, not the... No, 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 that, 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 the WWDC is where all of these announcements get made. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, so, well, now, of course, they have these Apple special events, but WWDC is where kind of the big stuff happens. And, um, yeah, so it was a lot of fun. Um, Ten days around the world. So, so you actually stopped in... Four countries. Well, I stopped in stopped in San Francisco for a couple of days, and then in London for a couple of days. So, yeah, but um, so worth it. Yeah, to see Steve Jobs. Well, the seeing Steve Jobs. Yeah, you know, um, I saw Steve Jobs first when I was back at Princeton, and he had just been kicked out of Apple, and he came across and introduced us to the next. You might remember he was running... Yeah, he had a company afterwards called Next. Yeah, yeah. I, so I don't know what they did, but... Next, he, he brought this box in that was a, a cube, you know, sort of a one-foot cube, and just kind of black. It looked like a monolith from uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. Right. And, uh, and, and there was a black screen um, uh, as well. Of course, they were made with Sony Trinitron tubes back then because that was the highest resolution you could get. But he plugged this thing in, fired it up, and this thing began to play music. And I was looking at this and I was saying, how the hell is he doing this? Because you've got to understand at the time that hard drive technology and processor technology... So what what year was this, um, roughly? This was was around about 1988. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... So this thing was driven by a Motorola 608030 processor. Um which is what the original Macs were, had a variation on them. 
And this processor was not fast enough to be able to do what a CD player does, you know, which is essentially churn out digital audio. Yeah. And because, you know, at that time, the best quality digital audio you could get was around about um, 22 kilohertz, and your CD quality is 44.1 kilohertz. But um, this thing was playing music and playing it flawlessly. And, and then I worked out what he'd done. He'd actually put in a digital signal processing chip and then um, put in a, a MIDI synthesizer and had just basically fed it the score. And so it was playing out the score as, as music. So right. it was not dependent on hard drive uh, speed and all of that. And it was absolutely the most beautiful thing I had seen in my life up until that point, from a technology point of view, of course. You know, I mean, up, up until that stage, there was the DeLorean. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah the car, yeah. Back to the future, yeah. And now suddenly there was the, the, this, this cube, and, and he was just like, uh, he, he was impressive, let's put it that way. What do you make of, um, so there's a view of history, which is that, you know, there's, there's these, like, the strong man version of history, where you got these, just these geniuses of their time, or strong women. I mean. Oh, well, whatever. Yeah, but it's mostly men because yeah. it's a patriarchal history yeah. um, mm-hmm. that we we uh, read. Um, but the strong man. So there's like these these wonderful geniuses throughout our throughout history that that did these amazing things, and they've contributed to all this this wealth and greatness of the world that we know today. And I like, do you think Steve Jobs? I mean, I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people could have, like Alexander Graham Bell. A lot of people could have painted the, the telephone. There were a lot of people working on it. Darwin as well. They were, he had two or three competitors working on the same <clears throat> theory of evolution. But do, do you think Steve Jobs was 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 unique, or how do you view Steve Jobs? I don't know. I, I think unique is is too much of a of a kind of loaded um, term. I, I, I think that Steve Jobs has well had a particular quality that. Um, a couple of people have had over the course of history. I think you know Da Vinci's, you know, a good example. You know, a combination of of engineer and artist at the same time, which is I think the, kind of the missing link because you have people who are kind of left brain and right brain. Yeah. But people who are actually able to connect the dots on those two things, um, they kind of rare. I think Musk is good at it. You know. Oh, Elon Musk. Yeah. 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 I, I think he's actually able to connect those dots and and make things that. You know, from an engineering point of view, are really, really excellent. But at the same time, he understands the showmanship and he knows how to make it cool. Mm. And I think that particular combination is is the stuff that that's kind of rare and you know, difficult to uh, to come across. So I don't think it's unique, but I, I think it's it's uh, rare enough to yeah, make it's it. Rare, it's, it's rare enough to, but uh, you need the combination of a person who's got that ability to connect the dots. And then to be in the right place at the right time with access to the capital and um, no one to override your decision-making to yeah. actually make it possible. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, but talking about Elon Musk, I mean, he sold PayPal. He got about $200 million. Yes. Then he started SpaceX and Tesla, and he was sleeping on his friend's couch. Completely broke. Yes. Couldn't earn. I mean, you have to be quite uniquely wired to think that that's sure, a, but a, a good idea. Steve Jobs was strolling um, across town uh, once a week. Um, he'd walk eight miles to eat at the Hare Krishna temple because, you know, that would be like his decent meal for the week. But 
yeah, the guy was essentially driven by the fact that, you know, he, he was working on cool stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, Musk sleeping on his, uh, his friend's couch, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, well, having all his money into these two things that were very theoretical at the time. Yeah, I guess so. That's your 10... Your, That's my around the world in 10 days. Yeah. Around the world but, in but 10 days. Basically triggered by Steve Jobs. And uh, look, uh, Steve Jobs changed my life because... Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, the time that I left the country and went to, to the US, I understand that I was working as a journalist here and I skipped the country with a state of emergency and uh, ended up with a scholarship to Princeton and um, walked into the computer center there, saw my first Macintosh. Well, it wasn't my first Macintosh, because I'd seen them um, uh, back home. Um, there, there used to be a uh, department store called Garlics, which... Here in Germany, or here well, in South Africa. Well, here in South Africa, uh. yeah, but, but basically, you know, Garlics and Durban in the basement had a section that was set up that was devoted to, um, to Apple Macs at the time. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking uh, 1984, 1985. And but I got to the computer lab at Princeton and saw one of these for the first time. There was uh, a laser printer and uh, an Apple Mac working with two floppy drives. And I understand, you know, coming from a journalism background in South Africa, we set up community newspapers back then. Mm. And what would happen is, you know, we'd invest in uh, in typesetters and um, and then end up. Uh, putting out our first issue, and then the security branch would pitch up and confiscate the press. The whole thing, yeah. Yeah. So all the money and yeah, so effort the money was just which, wasted. You know, uh, yeah, would end up being wasted. And I took a look at this laser printer and Mac combo, and I said, you know, you could take one of these, stick it in the trunk of a car, produce something in one space, and then move it on, and they'd never catch up with you. Yeah. And, um, and so I started learning computer science just because... I wanted to be able to, to do this stuff. So I got a job at the computer center and walked in there. Uh, at Princeton? At Princeton, yeah. Right. So, you know, I went in there one morning to, you know, uh, essentially the place where everyone comes to get advice on just about every bit of computing that they've got out there. And the woman sitting at the, uh, the back office over to see her, and I said, um, I'd like to work here. And she said, well, what do you know about this stuff? And I said, Absolutely nothing. And she said, well, what can you do? And I said, well, just about anything. You know, give me time. And she said, I see. And she said, okay, when can you start? And I said, tomorrow morning is good for me. Um, so this, while you're doing your studies, yeah, because you look, have a yeah, job. Look, I had a full scholarship at Princeton. Right. I needed to be working part-time to... For full obligations of that no, 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 scholarship. No, 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 because I had to pay for my books, for example. Oh, right. Yeah. Scholarship doesn't cover the whole, no, no, it the whole thing. Yeah. So it's, it's not, you know, look, don't get me wrong. The, the scholarship is, um, at, at the time, the fees for Princeton were $25,000 a year. So we're talking 1986, uh, 86, 86 oh, 80. yeah. So yeah, that's huge. Yeah, so it was uh, was pretty huge, and uh, certainly out of the realm of affordability for South Africa back then. But um, yeah, I had to work part time in order to pay for my books and and obviously for pocket money and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and so I was actually holding down two other jobs at the same time. So um, I was working food services, which basically meant that you serve food in the dining hall, and then um, there was a uh, restaurant across the road where I worked as a bartender. And um, 
Then you I'll, made your way. And then I'll, yeah, then I landed this computer center uh, gig. And, uh, and then one of the first things that I did was to hook up the Apple Mac to the IBM mainframe. You have to understand that at the time, the whole idea of a file server, because you, know, you had PCs which are considered to be toys, and then you had uh, the... Uh, the real computer, yeah, the real which computer. is the mainframe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, was, I remember learning about this in, in, in primary school. Yes. Even yeah, though so we had fully functioning PCs, we had to learn about mainframes, yes. which, which don't really, didn't even exist at the time in, in the same way. But yeah, anyway. So. Yeah, so the, you know, there was the IBM 3081 mainframe, and then um, um, there was a VAX. Uh, I think it was an 8700 um, digital VAX. So there, there, there were huge machines, you know, um, shared computing resources. And, um, oh, one of the guys um, who used to come in to the computer center for advice was, uh, was John Nash. Oh, the, the man who developed Be- Game Theory. Beautiful mind. Yeah. 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 And, uh, oh, so did you meet him yeah. a few times? Yeah, so John Nash really? used, to, used to come in on, on, on a regular basis, and uh, um, uh, myself and there was another guy, Ed Milchers, who... Um, Ed, Ed's dead now. He died of cancer a couple of years ago. But uh, we were kind of Nash's favorites because Nash would refuse to use the computer terminals yeah. because he thought it was a waste of, of computing processing resources. So he would bring in his uh, programs on a stack of uh, punch cards. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you had to... Yeah, no, no. I mean, you said that we'd we'd go through the process of booking it in, and oh, right. but 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 essentially, you know, we'd need to make sure that um, uh, stuff that he needed in terms of uh, subroutines on uh, on the mainframe, all of that kind of stuff, was actually um, uh, where he thought it was. Because sure, um, so you just got it ready by the time he arrived. And yeah, made sure it all worked. Because, look, essentially, he was doing the broad brushstrokes in terms of. Um, of how the programs were, were meant to be running. But but obviously the very specific system calls and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, um, look, at the time I probably would have paid more attention to it if I had known just how um, utterly famous he was going to be. But, yeah. Uh, he didn't win his Nobel Peace Prize by then. It was, no, no, it was I mean, 90s, I think. Yeah, 94, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so well, he was, developed game theory, yeah. which is a... a Strategic yeah, revolution in strategic thinking and mathematics. Sure. Um, yeah, but um, but anyway, so uh, I started working with the stuff of uh, connecting microcomputers to mainframes, and uh, um, then ended up um, working for the program in applied and computational mathematics because um, they had you know really cool silicon graphics hardware. Now, if, if you saw the first Jurassic Park. Yes. All of the um, the animations that were done for the first Jurassic Park back in 1993 um, were done on silicon graphics hardware. It was just like the coolest graphics um, possible at the time. Yeah. But um, it had a really great flight simulator, which, of course, was the main reason why you'd want to sit down in front of these hideously expensive machines. But um, so I, I went to work for the program in applied and computational mathematics. They... And then IBM had come out with a, a, a new chip um, at, at the time. Um, flip the track, remember? I think it was the i860. It's been a bit, it's been a bit of a while, but uh, 
but essentially, um, well, your computers do two types of calculation. Okay, there's there's integer calculation, which is limited by the size of the chipset. So, you know, your early computers were eight bit computers, which means yeah. that, they, that the biggest space that they're able to hold is two to the power of eight, um, which is what's it, thirty two seven six eight. Um, but so if you want to get, do a calculation of any number that's bigger than that, then you have to basically do a floating point calculation. Okay. Which, which you know, if you, when I was a kid, we used to do that on on log tables. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. So I did maths then, great. So. Jeez, all right. Anyway, I think it's called calculus. Called, no, 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 no. No. Now calculus is uh, yeah, but 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 essentially, you know, in order to calculate very large numbers, you. Uh, you'd make use, but essentially a floating point calculation is is the equivalent of that because, um, uh, but anyway, the uh, Intel came up with this uh, uh, I860, I think it was, but you know, uh, I'm probably going to remember later on tonight. Okay, damn, I got that wrong. Well, first of all, it's IBM, not Intel. Yeah, this is. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, no, sorry, sorry, it's uh, in the yeah Intel. Intel. Oh, it is Intel. Intel okay. Sorry, yes. Anyway, uh, this. Um, this particular chip, in terms of its floating point calculation speed at the time, was roughly half the speed of a Cray YMP. And a Cray YMP at the time was the fastest supercomputer in the world. And it was restricted tech in terms of you know, what the US had available. So yeah. you know, they were only exported to very specific countries. Um, uh, at the time, even though... Technically, they were not supposed to. The Israelis had a, uh, a bunch of these. Um, but, um, and, and Princeton had a crate, which was sitting at uh, um, the John von Neumann Supercomputer Center, which was at the Plasma Physics Campus, which was on the other side of the freeway, which, by the way, was around about the space that they used as the backdrop for, for house. Um, you know, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. House. That was fun. Yeah, okay. that's a, yeah. So, well, you know, the opening shots that uh, uh, over the lake, and so that's Lake Carnegie, which is at at Princeton, and uh, okay, yeah, yeah. But, okay. Uh, um, but, sorry, but I actually want to talk just before you went to Princeton. You said that you were a journalist here, yes. And then there, there was a state of emergency by by Boeta. Yes. Um, how? What was the day to day of being a journalist in those times, though? During Especially as as one who one who was not during white. During the state of emergency, no, or even just before then. Well, just before then was um, look. It, it, uh, the fascinating thing about journalism under apartheid is that you were actually free to say anything that you wanted to say. So you know you could say, "Bota is an idiot," and that's cool. Okay. So what you were not allowed to report on was fact. Fact. Yes. So, in other words, you know. So, if you had an IQ test that showed him to be an idiot, you couldn't say here's the proof. Well, there were there were very specific things that were constrained by, by uh, so there were very specific laws that would prevent you being able to say very specific things. Okay, very um, quick example. Um, the Prisons Act said that you couldn't take any pictures of any prisoner and publish them. Okay. Okay. So. Uh, when I was growing up, I had no idea what Nelson Mandela looked like. Sure. Because they, nobody had ever published a picture of uh, Nelson Mandela in the country. Um, when uh, when I grew up and then had access to ANC material that was smuggled into the country, and in fact I used to carry um, 
that stuff and distribute it around uh, around the country. ANC publications like Sechaba and Dawn and, uh, and that kind of stuff. And um, but legally, as a journalist, you were not able to show anyone a picture of Nelson Mandela. Right. Then you had the Suppression of Communism Act. And the Suppression of Communism Act said that if you were a listed communist, um, you were not allowed to quote anything that that person said. Oh, I see. But I assume the terms of communist were quite broad. Yes, well, basically the minister would say... Uh, he's, he's a, a communist. He's a communist. Iris- irrespective put of... Him on, put him on the list, and that meant that okay. you were not able to quote, which was kind of interesting because uh, a listed communist was still able to speak in public, but you couldn't report on what the person said. But why did they not crack down on public speaking? Well, because it, 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 it had would, limited audience. Yeah, or what? No, it would create the impression that, that you have freedom because, you know, people True. would, uh, you know, pitch up from outside the country and uh, uh, and uh, the Nats would say, of course, we've got freedom here. The guys were you know, able to speak in public. <coughs> and you would then turn around and say, but... You know, we're not allowed to quote him. But yes, but anyone who wants to really hear him can, can come and hear him. So, okay, so we had the Prisons Act. Right. Then we had the Suppression of Communism Act. The Police Act said that you could not report on anything involving the police unless you went to the police and gave them the story and the police gave their side of the story, and the police could give a complete denial of, of what actually went down. But in order to get access to getting a quote from the police, yeah. you needed to be a special, a special type of journalist. Right. You needed, because all journalists under apartheid, um, you were issued with a press card by the Minister of Police. So you are licensed. But, yeah, but mm. there were two types of press cards. You know? okay. there, there was one that was just basically recognizing, yes, that this is a journalist, but then there was a police press card which would allow you to speak to the police and get comment from the police. Were they racially, um, the press cards, were they given predominantly to, to white journalists no, or were they given to anyone who would apply? No, the, look, there, there were one or two people um, who were not white who ended up with police press cards. Okay. But that obviously meant that they were so deeply embedded and... Uh, uh, okay, you know, Infor- they, they informers. Were, yeah, they were obviously apartheid era spirits, you know. So, oh, right. Um, Okay, so that's what so, I meant. Okay, so, so we've got Suppression of Communism Act, we've got Prisons Act, we've got the Police, police Act, Act, which says that you can't publish anything involving the police unless you're getting comment from the police. So what that meant is that if I see a policeman shoot someone, unless I've got comment from the policeman um, on that, and I couldn't get comment unless I had a police press card, which you know meant that I needed to go to a journalist who had a police press card and to get comment. Then... There was the Defence Act, and the Defence Act said, actually, uh, anything involving the Defence Force, you can't publish it unless the Defence Force actually says that it happened. So, so there was no like overt censorship. It was just no, there, there, just there, just regulation there, upon regulation, regulation obstacle upon, upon yeah, obstacle. But opinion was free. You could say whatever you wanted to. You know, you could say that. Uh, uh, you know. Uh, Porter's mother cut socks in hell, you know, as an example, um, or, or variations on that theme, you know, spin the words around. But uh, when it came to actually publishing fact, with, and ultimately journalism is meant to be a fact, it's not about opinion. I know today that there's this 
view that we can go into that yeah yeah, yeah but uh, but fundamentally well there's the reporting what happened which is hopefully as factually accurate as possible one would think um, yes, yeah, I'm not a journalist by any means but one would think yes one would think but uh, but that that was the issue around journalism so it was impossible to do your job well we we found, or, or did you find ways well we found clever ways around that okay. I mean, you know uh, for, for you know one example was um, uh, immediately after the state of emergency was declared uh, the SAP the South African police then put on these township tours for journalists to show that you know everything was very cool in the townships you know, oh, okay. of course you know the, so they would escort you in on predetermined routes and uh, uh, and you know, try and show you shiny, happy faces where you, where you went, and the way in which I ended up telling that story was to make notes of the graffiti at every step of the way, which was telling an entirely different story. And then, so the way you got in was saying you're just reporting on graffiti, yeah, and then you reported yeah, on whatever to, you saw to, actually, to uh, get and, onto and, that and, thing, and, yeah. Um, and then to quote the policeman saying, you know, see, there's nothing happening in the townships. And of course, my punchline was, no, but there was something happening in the townships. The writing was on the wall. <laughs> and so this was that. This was the the, the people's war, the era of the people's war, ANC yeah. versus IFP. And well, that. yeah, well, well, the ANC versus IFP was was another completely uh, flipped that. You know, we, we, we could talk about that. The, 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 there you were talking literally about blood flowing in the streets. I mean, oh, yeah. FP, uh, uh, ANC versus IFP was one of the most god-awful things on... Uh, I, think, I think there were 20,000 murders in, in, in uh, eight, uh, eight years or something. I completely lost track of the numbers. And yet the, all the, those massacres, the Point yeah, Baton massacres yeah, and all that. Yeah, the numbers were horrendous. But, yeah. but, you know, we don't want to get distracted by that. No, because, no. Uh, so, so, when, so when you went into the townships in the, in the 80s... Yes. What did the police want you to... Look, sh- like, look, what was the issue the police were look, trying look, to... Firstly, understand that, you know, if you were not um, obviously... Um, black as an African um, and you, you're seen at the townships you'd immediately get flagged as a person who clearly didn't belong there because you know during the apartheid era you know obviously the, the past laws was the, was the most fundamental thing yeah. um, that applied but uh, townships were considered to be restricted areas if you were um, uh, not meant to be in that township so which, which was kind of interesting because, I mean, there, there was a period when I was living in Johannesburg in um, around about 83 when there were school boycotts going on. And there were uh, a handful of us who used to go into Soweto to teach classes to, to kids who were not at school during the day, but we were still doing, um, you know, just making sure that they were keeping up. Yeah, so, tutoring. Yeah, so... We would use the back roads from Glenasia into Soweto. I grew up dressed in Glenasia. I know. Mm. I know the route you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So, well, in fact, and and, and we uh, eventually managed to get that road renamed after Dr. Abu Asfad. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's now the Abu Asfad Highway, which links Glenasia with uh, with Soweto. And so we used to come in through the back routes, and we used to. So, uh, so, so as sorry, so as an Indian man in a township, that would be very suspicious. Yeah, to the state. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you know, clearly, well, someone like Abu Asfad, for example, who had a um, a clinic that he was running in uh, in Soweto, so it was, you know, a very specific thing that he had, you know, clear reason to be out there. Sure. But, uh, 
you know, for the rest of us, you know, we'd immediately be flagged with, uh, with suspicion. But, um, you know, so taking us back to... Um, the ge people don't understand the extent to which the geography of the townships was actually... Uh, planned. Planned. Very much planned. Yeah. Look, for example, right now, you, uh, if you're driving on the M1 um, towards um, uh, Crown Mines, well, uh, past Crown Mines, past uh, towards uh, Gold Reef City. Yes. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that the Soweto Highway passes right underneath and there's no connection between the M1 and the Soweto Highway? Yeah, you mentioned this to me before, and, yeah, and, and now I do notice, of course. Yeah, and now you notice. And, and the yes. reason for that is that the Nats wanted at any stage to actually be able to seal off the townships. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so because uh, the Soweto Highway was the only way in and out um, from that side, you could obviously come in from the Barra side and uh, join up with the Golden Highway and come across. But it meant literally that there were three roads that you could, well, no, in fact, two roads on um, the Johannesburg side of Soweto where you could just end up sealing off the township at any given stage. Yeah, yeah. if there was a, and, a problem. Uh, and, and every single township around the country was actually planned in exactly the same way. And so that apartheid legacy you can still see in the road design. Uh, yeah, I think it's called spatial planning or whatever it's called. Yeah. That's a euphemism. Mm, uh, sure. Now it's a big issue in Cape Town because yes. it's still... Still uh, demarcated along those lines, the apartheid lines, but uh, but yeah, I mean, but I mean, a lot of people don't. Maybe they do, but apartheid was like very planned. <laughs> Everything was planned yes. to to a large degree. To think it, it was not accidental or you know done on a whim. It was, a lot of things were planned. There's a that, that trickling down effect of for, for censorship, for example. Yes. You don't want people to talk about this. Okay, so we're going to make it difficult for people to uh, get information about this. And then, oh, but that will trickle down into three other things we don't want people to know about. So we'll just make it difficult for that to get out. And then by then, by the time you finish, 40 years later, you, you know, 80% of the state is top secret and no one's actually allowed to know what's going on. Well, but the fascinating thing is that a lot of those apartheid-era laws are still on our statute books to this day. Well, they're useful for those in charge. Well, I mean, a classic example is the National Key Points Act. Yes. Which... Uh, Kanda is one of those, I think. Well, it was suddenly... And again, the thing about the National Key Points Act is that you never at any stage know what is a national key point because there is no list of a national key point. Oh, there's no list? No, there's no so, list. So it's on the whim so, of the minister. So, so the minister just simply has to turn around and say, this is a national key point. And, uh, you know, so you get charged retrospectively with contravening the National Key Point Act. Right. And uh, so... Yeah. And I see there's also the, the, the Riotous Assemblies Act. They, they tried to pin that on Julius Malema a while ago. Yeah. Which is yeah, also well, like... The if, Riotous Assemblies Act is kind of interesting because the Riotous yeah. Assemblies Act says that uh, um, uh, the appropriate minister can uh, determine that any gathering is a riot. And a gathering consists of two or more people. Oh, it was that small? I thought yeah. it was a bit more no, than no, two. No, a okay. gathering consists of two or more people. And so, you know, again, one could... Uh, but that's the nature of government, though. I yes. mean, it is it is about power and control in the end. The, the ANC is 
is far less controlling than the Nats. Absolutely. No, no I, I think that the ANC is every bit as controlling as the Nats. Oh, really? But they are far less competent in terms of actually managing. Okay. Uh, well, this is the difference between intention and uh, an ability to yes. act on that intention. Yeah, okay, fine. I agree with you. If, if, if the ANC... And thank goodness for that. Oh, absolutely. If the ANC had a police state, I think they'll be quite happy. Quite happy with, yes. like a full-on police but, state. But, but, but for, they, fortunately, but our, have, our police force is unionized. And, and so the idea that they would actually need to do work is something that... But is, we have a wonderful police minister to ensure that uh, it will come to fruition. You uh, know, the, the, what the, what's his name? Fia Fokol. <laughs> the minister Fia Fokol. Yes. Yeah, I think that's his new name. That's his Twitter, uh, his Twitter name now. He's changed his name. Yeah. It is quite remarkable. But, but back in... When you were a journalist in the early 80s or late 70s, what was the ANC... To you and to your your compatriots in journalism, was it was it not mythical, but was it something that was a bit abstract? The ANC, you sort of just hear stories. No, no. Look, it it, it certainly wasn't abstract, but look, the, there was a clear distinction between the ANC in exile and ANC people within uh, within the country. Right. I was kind of it, in in a weird space because I straddled two worlds because. My kind of mental upbringing was black consciousness, but my, uh, my, my circle of contacts was primarily ANC. I mean, one of the um, people who was uh, really helpful to me in terms of broadening my understanding of the way in which the world worked. I mean, for example, you know, the CIA involvement in... Uh, in Latin America, yeah, um, narco the, states, the, and yeah, all that. The, the toppling of the uh, Noriega yeah. uh, uh, regime. I learned about that from Praveen Gordon. Oh right, yeah, okay. because, he, uh, because he was uh, neoliberals of inaction. Was that was that the, was that the, the title? <laughs> no, no, look, I mean, no. At the, at the time, uh, Praveen was uh, well. He was at the University of Durban Westfall, um, as you know. I, I was expelled from the University of Durban Westfall in in uh, 1980, but Praveen had uh, graduated as a pharmacist from there. Yes, so, that's right. Um, look, it, it bright guy, and access to a wide range of books, which he happily shared with, with people. And with, I, I with, Were they banned books, or just look, difficult they, to find? Yeah, difficult to find, oh, not okay. readily available. Well, look, obviously there was some stuff that was banned outright, like Communist Manifesto was banned outright. You know, uh, clearly, anything, any publication of, of the ANC was banned outright. But, uh, uh, but you know, uh, books that were detailing um, essentially, you know, CIA atrocities around the world. Which, um, I mean, uh, learning about the assassination of uh, Patrice Lumumba, for example, um, this is not stuff that you would hear on the radio or well, even uh, today. Yeah, yeah mm, you know, even today, most but, people don't read. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, I got access to that type of information from from people uh, like him. You know? Okay. So, um, so, so what was the difference between the ANC overseas and the ones here in terms of how you viewed them? Not you personally, perhaps, but well, we didn't really have access to ANC overseas. So everything that we had kind of got filtered down at different levels through. Um, so I, I was never. It's essentially, I'm, I'm not the type of person who actually has the ability to be a member of an organization. Oh, you're one of the... I'm, who, I'm, who said it? 
Well, the, one of the Marx Brothers. Yeah, exactly. I'll never be part of a club that... That, that would have me as a member. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I've, I've worked very closely. You know, I mean, so there, there was the, the detainees' parent support committee. I worked very closely um, um, uh, uh, with them. Um, I used to write for South African Students' Press Union, uh, for, for Sasko National. I used to contribute to, uh, to work in progress. I used to contribute to critical health. And these were all... Um, lefty publications that yeah. were essentially uh, associated with the ANC in some way or the other. But fundamentally, um, they were the few places where you could get access to fact at the time. You know, because... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. the local papers were not allowed to, so... Yes. So you had these underground... Not, I don't know, underground Well, yeah, papers, but, well, but they, they, were, they were highly niched, and, you know, uh, very often these things would end up being confiscated or... Or even shut down, but um, uh, but I worked very closely with um, uh, people with uh, uh, on the black consciousness side of the fence, and uh, what later became the United Democratic Front. Right. Yeah. Okay. Because, because I, I mean I'm friends with a lot of people your age, which is not to say just older than me, yeah. and they they range from. Socialist to like outright libertarian, and they yeah. all have the same thing that there was like a loose affiliation with the ANC. But what was nice about the ANC at the time was you didn't have to believe whole hog in the democratic revolution. They were willing well, the to come. Revolution as a phrase actually wasn't around at the time. I think, I think broadly speaking, all of us could subscribe to the values of the Freedom Charter. You know the broad brushstroke that you know South very, Africa very broad belongs yeah. to everyone. Yeah, and, South Africa yeah. belongs to all who live in it, and you know the doors of learning and culture should be open. You know all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. you know I, I think that there was there were core messages in the Freedom Charter that resonated across the board with uh, mm. um, obviously not with the Pan Africanist Congress because they felt really strongly that the land question needed to come first, and then you know everything else um, had to follow, but. Um, but yes, I, I think that um, the ANC and then its affiliates, you know, in, in various forms uh, in the country, because, you know, earlier on, all of the, the trade unions were in, in some way loosely affiliated either with um, the ANC or uh, with black consciousness. And, um, and again, I think we'd pretty much end up singing from particular hymn sheets. Now, as journalists um, at the at the time, yeah. um, black journalists were associated with uh, MOASA, the Media Workers Association of South Africa, which um, again was kind of straddling two worlds because uh, the MOASA president at the time was Velaki Sisulu, uh, but who was also uh, black consciousness, even though his father was clearly um, uh, ANC. So. It, it was a time where uh, things were not quite as polarized. Yeah, not as binary. Yeah. But how, yeah. how, how, what tensions were there between black consciousness and, and ANC? Look at because it, now everything's the same, right? So people don't distinguish them as much. No, actually... But at the time... Well, actually, black consciousness has almost completely faded away, if you think about it. Yeah. Um, black consciousness... Uh, was never African nationalist. Um, a lot of people think it is. Though. No, no, no it, it, it wasn't. You know, it's, a bit like, it's a bit like using Fanon 
the way these people use Fanon. Exactly. Some of these, yeah. It's like, he doesn't really want violence <laughs> and the killing of enemies. Like, yeah. it's, it's about, it's about no, finding much, something within the, yourself. Black consciousness was, was very much about, um, you know, don't wait for someone else to solve your problems. Actually take responsibility for, uh, for your own stuff and yeah. build your own capacity, build your own capability. Like, basically, it's okay to be black. Don't listen to what the state says or uh, things like know, that. I, I, no? I tried to, it's not about loving yourself. You know, I, I once tried to explain to, you know, because I used to teach classes at the Y Academy, and what black consciousness gave to me is my father's generation, when they were walking down the street, and if there was a white man coming from the opposite direction, uh, my father's generation would step aside. Right. And my generation did not. You know, we would walk head on and mm. inevitably the other person would give way. And it, it, it was entirely a mental state. And, you know, if, yeah. if you ask me what was the most basic definition of what black consciousness actually meant in my life, it, it was that very specific thing that I'm not going to give way unless it's on the basis of, of fundamental respect. I mean, I, I would give way for, to an older person. I mean, there's ways to be civil, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> sure. and, and you let, not, you and, let the white woman yeah, in first yeah. because she's a woman, not because she's white. Exactly. Simple things like that. Yes, yeah. or if you hold the door open for people. But, sure. Yeah, but, if, uh, but it was that, that whole stand your ground, really. And how did the ANC differ from that? Well, the ANC was more revolutionary type rhetoric at yes. the time. It wasn't just about, it was... <coughs> did they want to be the custodians of well, of yeah, black empowerment, yeah, so to there, speak? There's a story that, 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 that you know, at, at the time that the first state of emergency, which was 1985, and um, uh, which didn't apply to Durban. Remember, I was based in Durban at the time. and uh, But it did apply to Johannesburg. And a number of people were locked up from uh, black consciousness as well as the ANC at the same time. And, uh, and so they were held in communal cells. And uh, Sats Kupel was describing to me uh, how uh, people on the ANC side, you know, the, uh, the Indian guys would have their families coming over and uh, bringing food from Indonesia, which they would, you know, then end up sharing with their, um, uh, uh, their ANC comrades, come have this, it's briyani, it's lovely, it's nice. Yeah. And meanwhile, there was the black consciousness guys, there was, you know, Sats Cooper and, uh, and Muntu Mieza, uh, you know, sitting across on, the, on their side. And, and Sats was, uh, uh, was describing this engagement that, that he had. And he was saying, hey, Kaffa, go away from me. I'm not sharing my food with you. And Muntu would say, yeah, Kuli, don't worry. Remember 1949? When uh, uh, the revolution comes, you guys are going to be the first that we go for. And you have to understand that Sats and Muntu yeah. were together on Robben Island. These guys were blood brothers. Right. That they, they would literally take bullets for each other. But they were saying this just to mess with the very careful, politically correct dance. Because remember, the, the ANC... Of the ANC. Because the ANC, remember that you had... You had the Natal Indian Congress. You had the Transvaal Indian Congress. So, mm. it, uh, so you were very much a a broad collection of racially segregated uh, streams, yeah. shall we say? Whereas black consciousness, you were you you, you, you were there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, it wasn't the ideology to get yeah. into. Like, you, it's an it's an act. It, it's it, a practice. It, it's, it's kind of difficult, to, you know, to have uh, people, you know. Uh, 
Um, ANC people used to get freaked out, you know. Um, uh, I, my Black Rochester's buddies, you know, there was a guy named Bradley Potita. Um, and uh, we were at this uh, function once. It was a, it was a, um, it was a dramatization of the Biko inquest. And, uh, and I was seeing Bradley for the first time in a long time. And uh, um, so, you know, the usual, you know, uh, back slaps and uh, shake hands and, uh, uh, and yeah, Bradley, what do you call a Braino in a suit? And he, and he looks at me and he says, uh, I don't know, I said, the accused. <laughs> he says, yeah, and he says, what's, what's the difference between a charo and a bucket of shit? A child what? A charo. Uh, a charo. A charo. And he said, the bucket. These days you go to court for saying yeah, that. No, yeah, but you have to understand, okay? Now, I do. Um, uh, the woman that I was with at the time was just like completely freaked out. What? What? How can you guys be, be saying this, this type of thing? Um, but it, it, it was the sort of thing where we had this ability to just completely take the piss out of stereotypes. Yeah. And While uh, still believing in the same principles. While still believing in the same principles and actually... Uh, you know, we, we were a group of people that, um, I, like I said, would literally take bullets for each other. Yeah. Um, you know, without hesitation. I mean, uh, Sats Cooper to this day is one of my dearest friends, and um, you know, very much the case. So, but it's a, it is a different world. There was no political correctness. Well, um, well, well, I actually wanted to go back to that. So, it was the ANC quite? Did they not want to create divisions? They keep, exactly. They, they keep using these euphemisms for yeah. just. Yeah. Problems. Yeah. They want to cause divisions yeah, amongst all the, all the to, different yeah. organizations within you're them. You tread very carefully around specific things. And then there were some things that uh, the black consciousness guys would do that the ANC would not do because the ANC would never attack Gasha Butelezi in public. Uh, for those who don't know, that's uh, Mongosu Mongo Butelezi. Yeah. Yeah, back, well, back in the day, he was only known as... Uh, as Gacha. Gacha. And, and Shenge yeah. for some reason. I don't know where well, Shenge well, comes Shenge, from. Shenge is, is a respectful term. Oh, okay. Is, uh, generally, when I refer to him these days, I uh, I refer to him as Shenge because... Um, well, he's, uh, old, he's an old man it's, now. It's, no, it's, it's Shenge and, and Madiba. And, uh, oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So the ANC never criticized him in public? Well, within the country, yeah. So none of the, uh, the ANC people within the... Um, uh, the uh, within the country, you know, so in other words, people who are part of the UDF and so forth, they would never mention Gacha Butulezi by name. They would mention, uh, so uh, like, they, would, they, would, they would go after Mangope, they would go after Mpepu, they would go after uh, Matanzima, they would me, go after, uh, after Sebe, but they would never mention... Uh, and the reason being? He could be useful. I know. No, no, no. He no, was big, dangerous. Big, he was dangerous <laughs> because I, 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 got, I got summoned... To, to his presence once because you know he took exception to something that I'd written, oh. and and I walked past this phalanx of people with the um, yeah the Zululand police. They had ZP on their their lapels, and uh, uh, and then there was an honor guard of people, um, you know, with uh, uh, with spears, uh, right, and uh, and uh, you know he turns around to me and he says, uh, Mister Pele, I'm a man of peace. But my people will be displeased. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Chief Minister, it was the sub-editor's fault. 
<laughs> so you shift the blame. <laughs> Jesus, you know, and I, I said, and I, and I got the fuck out of there. It was like, next time Gasha calls you, you do not go, you know. But what, uh, I mean, I know a little bit about him, but how was he? Did he want a, a national Zulu Republic of sorts? Look, I, you have to understand the history of, uh, of, uh, of Butulevi. He was created by the ANC. So essentially what happened was uh, O.R. Tambo mm. um, took Butulesi, who was at the time part of the ANC Youth League, and tasked him with infiltrating the apartheid structures to then essentially set up a way to use those facilities to work um, in the service of the ANC. Yeah. Um, without telling the ANC people on the ground. So this was all very covert. And, uh, and so Gacha Butulesi did this and then took control of those structures to his own end. And, right. and um, Tambo finally only admitted this in 1985 at the, uh, the ANC's consultative conference, which I think was in, in Lusaka. Um, if, if you go to the NC website and you take a look at his address to the 1985 consultative conference, you know, he outlines the, you know, two things that happened. The one was that they deliberately uh, spread the misinformation that uh, Steve Biko was on the payroll of uh, the CIA. Oh, they admitted that so early? Yeah. On uh, well, and, and it, <coughs> Essentially, it, uh, the reasoning around it was that no one should be allowed to threaten um, the, uh, the international view at the time that the ANC was the sole representative of the people of, uh, sure. of the country. In exactly the same way that the PLO did that with regard to Hamas. Sure. Yeah, so, um, and you understand that from, you know, a, a military strategic point of view, you know, however you want to spin it. Um, I think my view in terms of Butulesi became a bit more nuanced as time went on because he absolutely refused to accept um, homeland status um, for Amazulu. So, you know, whereas you had the likes of Mangope saying, yes, we're going to yeah. set up Oputatswana, and you had Matatina setting up Transkai, and then, you know, eventually you had... Uh, uh, the Republic of Venda and uh, and all of these things and and Bortolesi stuck to his guns and said um, the only point at which he was willing to accept uh, any sort of homeland status is he said that um, Shaka's territory is all of Natal and you know unless so he wanted all of it yeah, yeah and uh, okay. I, I actually respect that because you know he wasn't going to be hived off into you know, uh, what was essentially from um, an agricultural point of view, certainly um, the worst quality real estate um, uh, in the province. Mm. So I, I guess my view in terms of him became more nuanced uh, at that level. Um, his support for unfettered capitalism, you know, as, uh, uh, you know, also... Yeah, but, and, uh, but, and but federalism that, as well. Yeah, but that was essentially the influence of, uh, of uh, Ambrosini. Uh, yeah. Because Ambrosini played a great role in you know, the latter part. So if you, if you discount uh, uh, Schenge's uh, um, propensity for retaining power by 
uh, by violence. And uh, look at the latter part of his uh, career, you know, up until now, he's, to a large extent, uh, he, uh, he still manages to do some things that are, are dear to me. For one, he respects the sanctity of Parliament. So, you know, you won't see him doing the type of thing that... Uh, um, yeah, that the youngsters that do. the youngsters do, you know, which is in Parliament, yeah, you know, to to make Parliament ungovernable because you have to, you know. Um, secondly, you know, the way in which he's conducted himself within the parliamentary structures has always been respectful of the personages that, that sure. have been around there. He's very firmly in support of of rule of law and and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, but if you read his manifesto, it's arguably more to the. Liberal right than any other. Well, I, I think it's, other it's more, I think it's political more party. I think it's more centrist. Well, liberal conservative. Uh, yes. Yeah. Fiscally, but, but fairly fiscally, conservative. Fiscally, yeah. Fairly conservative, but but yeah. socially, he's like yeah, marijuana legalization, more more provincial, all of, all of more federalism, yeah. state power. Uh, yeah. So we'll see. He's going off into the sunset. We'll see uh, what comes. Yeah. Of that. Uh, any, just to. Yeah, let's wind up a little bit. So just to to finalize this, any what are your deepest views about Cyril Ramaphosa? If, <laughs> if any, if any. So I'll give you mine. I think he'll be better than Zuma, which is not difficult, but I just think it's it's gonna be more of the same. I don't see any freshness of ideas. I don't see very hard reform. And the people falling over now for the state capture thing seem to be like fairly dispensable. People, executives at ESCOM, and you know, just small fry. Um, how do you foresee if you had a crystal ball? What would you say? I think it's too early for me to make that call right now, and um, I, I think we mustn't underestimate the extent to which uh, Jacob Zuma has managed to infiltrate almost every substrata of our, of our society. Yeah, people keep underestimating him, and, even uh, now. That, that, that's kind of like uh, yeah, unscrambling an omelette. How do you actually start doing that? And uh, I mean, the levels just run so absolutely deeply yeah. that it, it's going to take pretty much forever. But having said that, the number of things that um, Cyril Ramaphosa can do in the short term that can very quickly fix things. I think that if he appoints a national uh, director of public prosecution... An uh, independent one. An independent one as, uh, as kind of a starting point. And then if he fixes SAA, if he fixes ESCOM, if he fixes uh, Transnet, and all one really has to do is to appoint competent business people into those positions. Yeah, instead of just... Those, because understand that right now that those are the biggest drain upon... The, uh, the well, I think ESCOM debt is uh, 300 billion rand or something. Yes. It's like a third of our bloody GDP. Yes, but uh, every year. Well, it's a third of our revenue. Okay, revenue. Yeah, but, uh, right. uh, but, but certainly if he, if he just does those things, yeah. the knock-on effect in terms of the rest of the economy is going to be huge. True, but the problem still persists. Yes. Monopoly of, of services. Monopoly of services. And it but all I, depends I, on... I also think that, you know, if, if you consider where um, a, a lot of things are moving in the world right now, I think mm. one of the, um, uh, the things, for example, you, you take the case of ESCOM. I, I, I see ESCOM actually being obsolete in a relatively short space of time. Because well, I bloody well hope so. But yes, I agree with you. Evolution and battery technology and yeah. solar panels. Elon Musk will save us with his well, Tesla well, battery. Well, he's driving uh, the tech. Yeah. And that's then forcing 
a situation where the cost of batteries is going down drastically, which means that um, our kids will probably not have to pay for electricity because they're just going to harvest it from their rooftops. Or maybe it'll be a communist country. You don't pay for anything, can't them? There's always, there's, you must always look. You must look to the future with with light in your eyes. There could also yeah. be darkness there. Yeah. But I get I, your point. I, I suppose it could. I get your point. But uh, look, I, I, I certainly think that um, we're better off right now than we were a short period ago. Just because, simply, if you look in terms of the direct impact of Ramaphosa on the ramp. Yeah. We are now in a situation where. We can uh, travel again. We, no, but more importantly, the price of fuel is going to plummet, which is the single biggest thing that influences um, uh, the cost structure for most of this country. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, most things are... And I never get up telling you about my becoming a computer scientist, but there you go. Well, I mean, Gonson, that's why we have this uh, well podcast, because we're going to have uh, repeat guests quite often, and you can become, you can tell us your... Your story about becoming a computer scientist, but is it is it still relevant? Sorry, like I don't know anything about computers or tech, but what you learned there, then late eighties, is it still relevant today? Well, in terms or is it just in terms of? Look, I, I think the thing that people have to understand is that computer science was never about the tech; it was all about the algorithms and how you apply right. that. Um, and uh, if if you take what Michael Jordan is doing right now with. Um, his new unit trusts, which is basically applied machine learning to to investing, and um, uh, and it is about the algorithms. And um, so the tech gets better; that's lying underneath. But your ability to tell the computer how to go about solving the particular problems are the lessons that I think are going to stay with me. And you know, to put this in perspective, I'm going to be shifting a lot of my pension fund into. Um, Michael, you don't products. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a free plug. Maybe you should... Michael, if you're listening, you, you, may, you may want to sponsor the podcast. <laughs> yeah. No, we will get him out at some point. All right, Mr. K. Well, thank you. Uh, so for those who are listening, uh, Canton only follows 100 people, so don't go DMing him to, to oh, you follow. Can, you can DM me. Uh, my DMs are open, but... Uh, Your DMs are open, but you don't follow. But I, but I don't follow. Only 100 people, and I'm one of those. Yeah. That's why we're here. Well, yeah, you're one of those. But... Um, yeah, look, I mean, the, the 100 people actually shift around, you know, because, mm. you know, some people stop tweeting after a while. So um, Warren Buffett fell off because, you know, he tweeted once and then um, kind of fell away. Uh, yeah, you know, these things kind of... Uh, and then, uh, you know, if you suddenly become boring, you know, so don't be boring on Twitter. And then as, as soon as you start you know, beating the drum of, oh, I don't know, you know, Trump is evil... Trump is the greatest living American president we have. For well, now. Because Reagan's dead. So. Uh, living American. Well, but okay, fine. Not yeah. living. I think he's the greatest American president for the past 20 years. For great, two reasons. For two reasons. Number one, okay, he actually has done a lot of what he said he would do, which is fine. But number two, he is just making presidential power look stupid which I appreciate because I want people to be very suspicious of state power. So that's why I like him. Not because I like him personally. He's probably a narcissistic little bastard. But in terms of what he's doing, I like what he's doing. Well, he's got small hands. But big hair. So <laughs> it even out. Mr. Gay, thank you, sir. All right. I appreciate you coming on. Have you got theme music yet? No. Right. I don't think we all have. That's just a conversation.
Cheers. Say goodbye to the camera. <laughs> Bye. Camera's dead. <laughs> Camera's dead. Camera died. All right. <laughs> Thank you. That was interesting. Because I... You know what? You can read as much about the ANC as you want, but it's, it's, a, it's a closeted history. Yes. Very closeted. And it's difficult for people in that time frame to speak about it. Well, not to speak about it. Did you have a perspective? Oh, shit. Did you log off? No, it's all... Leave it for Because she's just going to come now, I suppose. You have to come up with a better solution for this. <laughs> <laughs>